There is a, an animal rescue society in Georgia called Noah's Ark, and their mission is to uh, kind of like have a zoo for animals that have been abused. And I was reading about, uh, in one case, they brought in a tiger, a lion, and a black bear all at the same time who had been somewhere. They didn't explain it, but they had been abused. And these three ferocious animals came through kind of as a trio, and they lived together in harmony. Now, that doesn't always happen in nature, does it? How about those who have tried to uh, have maybe a, a wild animal as their pet, and things go really well for a while, and then the instinctive nature of that wild animal comes out, and maybe some bad things might happen, and, and we have to be wise for those kind of things, don't we? As we look around in nature to find perfect unity, have you noticed it's pretty hard to find? We read in the scripture how when Adam and Eve sinned, a curse came upon the whole world and even the animal kingdom and the earth itself. The entire universe is under a curse and affected by sin. And so when we come to this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to see here the idea and the exhortation for the body of Christ to be unified. Now, you've heard us say um, abundantly, but we'll say it again, unity is not uniformity, right? You, uniformity is where everyone looks exactly the same, acts exactly the same, says exactly the same thing. You know, uh, we obviously don't have that. Uniformity is different from unity because unity brings often opposing forces together to work in harmony. Now, the whole idea of unity begins with God himself. God is the source of all real unity because God is unified in his character and his person, and God has declared himself to be one God. And so unity begins with God God created the idea of unity. Just like God created the idea of right and wrong. Whatever God says is right because he invented the word, right? So God created the idea of unity because he is the definition of unity. In his being, God demonstrates unity within plurality. How do you like that concept? those two things sound like opposites, or at least extremely different. But the greatest expression of unity is God. He is undivided in his essence. He's undivided in his purpose. He's undivided in his love for the redeemed. Now, we know that God has presented himself to us as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We call that the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the concept is. And even though God presents himself as three persons, he's not three personalities. He's not one thing one day and something else another day. But he's one God in essence, but 
relates to us in three persons. Now, when we come to Ephesians chapter 4, we come to the hinge of the book. This is how Paul tends to write his letters. He will begin by teaching basic truth we call doctrine, and then he will come to how to apply that doctrine. We call it practice, or walking in faith, or living out your faith, okay? And so when you come to chapter 4, verse 1, and we read, I therefore, that therefore is the hinge of this letter. Because now the Apostle Paul is going to move from talking about our salvation and the composition of the church and who we are and how God planned it before he created the universe and how he put us together as Jews and Gentiles into one body and everyone is saved by grace through faith the same way. We come to chapter 4 and now it's we know who we are, how do we live it? Okay, so that's where we're going to be in chapters 4, 5, and 6. How to live the Christian life. The Apostle Paul did the same thing in Romans. Spent the first eight chapters declaring um, deep truth about our salvation. Then he did a parenthesis about Israel in chapters 9 through 11. And you come to Romans 12, from there on, it's all about how to live. You know, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. He does the same thing in Colossians. Lays out the doctrine, then brings in how to live it. Every letter Paul writes, he carries that pattern of, here's the truth, now what do you do with it? Okay? So we're thinking about that. And when we come here to Ephesians chapter 4, the first thing he says here is that God has placed believers into a unity by placing us into Christ's body, the church. Now, he's already said that, hasn't he, in a certain way? Because he talked about the Gentiles and the Jews and the mystery of the church. Right? You're with me on this now, right? Because I've been hammering this. I've been hammering this thought. Jews and Gentiles coming together. And, you know, for us in the 21st century... We know this. And you might be saying, but pastor, you said this like how many times now? Uh, this is sermon number 12, by the way. So for the last 11 sermons, we've been saying Jews and Gentiles didn't come together in any way, shape, or form until Jesus put them together. And now we don't really call Jews or Gentiles or male or female or slaved or free or anything else, any other distinction, because we're all one in Christ. And so here, the Apostle Paul is saying, Christians are called to the unity of the Spirit. Now we're going to say some things about the unity of the Spirit that you might not like. Are you ready for this? We're going to say some things about the unity of the Spirit that you might say, uh, uh, what, what? what did you just say? Uh, I don't know if I like that. Have you ever noticed how Scripture tends to do that to us? If we really allow Scripture to invade our minds and fill our minds and hearts, it starts to pick at the weak areas of our life. It starts to show us things 
that need to change so that we might be more like Jesus? Doesn't unity just sound like a really happy idea? Let's just have unity. Oh, it just sounds so comforting. Sounds so nice. I like it, don't you? Unity. Great. The only problem is, to get to that place, you are going to have to give up something. In fact, it might be everything. How's that sound to you? Anybody want to sign up to say, yes, Jesus, I give up everything today. Here is my everything, my life, my possessions, who I am. I turn it all over to you, Jesus, because you are my all in all. That is what it is to be born again. That's what it is to be a Christian. That is how Jesus is shaping us into his image right now. Because he's pushing and cutting and polishing and sanding us so that we will begin to see he owns us. Everything that we have belongs to him. Here's my outline. First of all, Christians are called to the unity of the Spirit. And we're going to see under that thought that we're called to a life worthy of the Lord that we're called to a life that's characterized by lowliness and that we're called to a life to serve others. That may not be what you signed up for when you trusted Christ. Secondly, today, God set the pattern for the unity of the Spirit and He does so through the persons of the Godhead. First of all, the Holy Spirit provides unity within the church. Secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ provides unity in the gospel. And thirdly, the Father provides unity within the Godhead. So we're going to look at the first six verses. I actually read down through verse 7 by mistake. But, uh, you know, that was all right. We're, but we're going to stop at verse 6. So let's look at um, the first thought here. Christians are called to the unity of the Spirit. Anybody uh, agree with this? Are Christians called to the, to the unity of the Spirit? Does that sound like something that's in the Bible? Would you sign up for this? Would you agree to this? I hope you know as soon as you agree for this, you're gonna, it's going to cost you something. But don't pull back. Let's, let's give it all for the Lord today. Okay, this is what the text says. Ephesians 4.1 I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, let's just stop with verse 1, mid-sentence. Does Paul not say we are called to a life worthy of the Lord? Is he saying that? Yes or no? Oh, he is. He's saying you are called to a life that is worthy of Jesus. Hmm, where is this going to go? We've already said that verse 1 is a major transition of this book. When he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now he's saying, first of all, he says something similar to back in chapter 3 when he talks about being a prisoner. But the main transition here is, now that I've said all that I've said thus far in this letter, 
And he didn't divide it up in chapters. But he says to this point, now it's about living it. And he liked to use the word walk. What is your Christian walk? That's your Christian life. That's how you behave on a daily basis. So he says, I'm going to urge you. I'm going to exhort you. He uses the word there, parakalo. It's the word we get paraclete from. That's the word that's been applied to the Holy Spirit, right? As the comforter. The comforter comes alongside to encourage and to exhort. And Paul says, I'm doing right now what the Holy Spirit does. I'm going to urge you. I'm going to exhort you. I'm going to give an exhortation that you need to listen to this and then do it. That's what he's saying. And that's what I'm trying to repeat. I'm not saying anything new. I'm just repeating what Scripture says. You notice he says, a prisoner for the Lord. What did he say back in chapter 3, verse 1? A prisoner of Christ Jesus. He changes it. And you know, those little prepositions are so important. I remember having to memorize those when we were studying uh, back in Bible study times. You had to know what those prepositions, and they're so precise and they're so important. Before he said, I'm not a prisoner of Rome, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. But now he says, I am a prisoner of for the Lord, because of my devotion to him, my faith in him, because of what I owe him, because how he saved me, I'm a prisoner of him. And I think he's saying to you and to me today, excuse me, but I've given everything I got. I'm a prisoner for Jesus, so you need to listen to what I'm going to say. That's what Paul's saying. I'm not only a prisoner of Jesus, not Rome, but I'm a prisoner for Jesus because he owns me and everything that I am belongs to him. This idea of walking in a manner worthy, the NIV puts it like this, live a life worthy. Does it matter how we live? I mean, when we go out of here today, we're here to sing God's praise, we're to think... We open the Word, listen to the pastor, you know, expound Scripture. We come to the Lord's table. We do all these things. We fellowship. Then we go our separate ways. Then what? It matters how we live, how we talk to people, how we talk to strangers, if we're a witness or not. It matters whether we have devotions, whether we're praying in our homes, whether we're calling our family together and saying, hey, we need to pray. It matters whether we pray for one another and visit one another and get on that meal train and help feed somebody that needs encouragement. It matters. And Paul is saying to us, in fact, Jesus is saying through Paul to us, you need to live a life that's worthy of me. I gave my all for you, Jesus is saying. And now I expect you to respond in the same way. He talks about the calling. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What does he mean by this calling? Well, remember, he's already talked about it in the first three chapters. He's talked about our calling. What's our calling? How you came to Christ. How you heard the gospel. You heard it. Somebody shared it with you. 
Somehow you heard the message of it. Somehow you responded to it. And he says, our calling includes the blessings of salvation that I talked about in chapter 1. Our calling refers to the one new people group called Christian, where believing Jews and Gentiles are joined into one body. And again, I remind you, do you you realize how important that is in the culture? What does a sermon about unity say to the United States of America right now? Is there any relevance to this idea in our country? Are we a unified country or are we a divided country? I mean, all you have to do is turn on the news. And we've got all these people groups and all these little subgroups and all these people that are saying, I have my rights, I have my rights, I want my rights. That's not a Christian talking. Because I'm here to tell you, when you came to Christ, you gave up your rights. I'm not talking about the Constitution and the United States of America. I, I appreciate the freedoms that we have. But I'm talking about following Jesus here. And when you come to follow Jesus, you give up your rights. Do you realize that there is no unity of the Spirit unless you personally give up your rights? You like this? You still want to sign up? Still want to do this? I mean, you don't get to come to church and say, my opinion is this. We don't care what your opinion is when it comes to the unity. Do you like talk like that? My opinion means nothing unless it's lining up with what Jesus says. Believe me, I've been struggling with this. All week long I've been praying, Lord, how far do you want me to go? How far do you want me to go with this? I have preached this sermon like 30 different ways this week in my mind. And I keep saying, whoa, whoa. Yeah, you could say that, David, but are you doing that? Oh, where the rub comes doesn't it our calling also includes participation in god's plan for unity and you know you know what satan loves to do he loves to divide and you know what jesus wants out of us he wants us to come together in unity and put one another first and love each other so much that we practically trip over each other trying to serve one another and that's not easy to do And I hate to tell you, I'm sorry to admit, it doesn't come naturally to me. I'm very happy with my convenience. And I have to fight it. And so he says, you need to live a life that's worthy of the calling. Your calling is Jesus hung on the cross and all of his blood ran out for you. What are you doing for him? That's what he says in verse 1. He goes on to say in verse 2, we're called to a life that's characterized by lowliness. You know, if you're a Christian, you're a lowly person. Did you know that? If you're a believer in Jesus, you're a lowly person. Do you like that? Do you like that kind of talk? Notice what it says in verse 2. Am I misreading this? With all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. It's so easy to read this verse, even though I jump over the line sometimes. 
It's so easy to read. Oh, yeah, humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Oh, thank you, Lord, I got this. Oh, really? You got this when a call comes at an inconvenient time? Do you got this when somebody says something that hurts your feelings? Are you getting this when somebody's attitude rubs you? Do you like it when someone else has a different style of music than what you've got? I mean, what is it saying? Did you know that the Greeks and Romans had no word for humility? There's no word among Greek and Latin for humility. Paul had to make it up. He had to, make, he had to put together some words that talked about, in, in, at least in Greek society, meant cowardly, ignoble, self-demeaning, lacking proper pride. In the Greek mind, somebody that was lowly was worthless and get rid of them. And here Jesus comes and says, you want to be like me? Then you're going to be lowly. What does the Bible say about Moses? He was the what? The, you know, the meekest. Anybody want to sign up for meek? What is meek? You know, we think of meek as mm, weak, not really something you want to strive for. But you know what meek really means? It means strong. To be meek means to be strong and under control. That's what meek is. Meek is when you're strong enough that you could crush the enemy, but you don't do it. That's what meekness is. That's who Jesus is. That's what Moses was. And that's what we're called to be. And that's what the word gentleness means. So we're called to humility. Humility demands self-awareness. It demands Christ-awareness. It demands God-awareness. For us to, be hum to have humility, first of all, as soon as you think that you have it, you just lost it. Isn't that great? I wanted to get up here and, and tell you how, how humble I am. I was trying to figure out how I could pull this off. It's impossible. As soon as in your self-awareness you think, Woo, I'm pretty humble. That just went out the window, didn't it? You follow that? Humility demands Christ awareness, not just self-awareness, but it's the only standard by which righteousness can be judged. So here's how you do it. Compare yourself with Jesus. How's that going to work? How's that working out? Good? Jesus perfect? I'm going to follow and I'm going to line up with him and say, how do I line up? Mm, not so good. Humility demands God awareness. He's the only one about whom the seraphim cry, holy, 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 and they never stop. He's the ultimate judge. And we will be humble before him at judgment. So if you're really humble, you don't even know it. You're really humble, you don't even know it. You're really gentle, you're pouring yourself out for the Lord. By the way, David was gentle and meek when he refused to kill Saul. We've been studying that. John's been teaching. David, a couple times, you know, his friend said, let me strike him, I won't miss. I'll strike him once. 
I wonder if David thought, yeah, but what if everybody wakes up? But maybe not. Do you know Moses was meek? When he confronted Pharaoh, it says that there was no one on earth more meek than him. The meek person responds willingly to the word of God. And so if you are truly meek right now, you're hearing what I'm saying, and you're not getting angry, and you're not saying, hey, what about my rights? What about your rights? What are, what are our rights really? He doesn't stop there. He says, with patience. This is a word that means long-tempered. It means long-suffering. A great example would be Abraham. Just, just meditate on Abraham's life one more time. You know, he and his wife wanted to have a child. It's not happening. Then they decide to do it the wrong way when he's 86 years old and they have a child through Hagar and God said, that's not it. That's not right. And so it's not until he's 99 years old that the promise comes through. I mean, you talk about patience. Think about Abraham and, and, and Sarah. Oh, here's another good one. How about Noah? Was he patient? Noah wants you to build this thing called an ark. It's going to be like a big, massive, barn-like boat. And I want you to build it out in the wilderness so it can float. And how long do you do this? Oh, just a mere 120 years? Come on, I mean, what, what's going on here with patience? I'm thinking, I, I, you know, after the first year, I might have said, Lord, come on, one year has gone by. 120. And you know, you start reading Isaiah and Jeremiah. How about Isaiah? Isaiah, I got, a, I got a job for you. I want you to preach this message. Okay, Lord, I'll do it. And then he gives him the vision of the, of the uh, throne room. Holy, holy, holy. And then he tells him, yeah, I want you to go preach to all disobedient people. How long did I do this, Lord? Oh, you just keep doing it. But, but how long? No, just keep doing it. Will anybody listen? No, nobody's going to listen. Nobody. And I want you to keep doing it until there's nobody left. How about Jeremiah? Same kind of thing. Lord, do I have to do this? Yes, you have to do it. How long? Until I tell you to stop doing it. This, I struggle in my heart about this. You notice what else it says here in verse 2? Not only humility and gentleness and patience, but bearing with one another in love. A word that means forbearance. A word that means to carry someone. Peter said, love covers a multitude of sins. And so to be lowly in God's sight means that when someone hurts me, I say, the Lord forgives that. You're free. You're forgiven. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's what it is to be like Jesus. And you notice what the very next thing says in verse 3? After all this talk about patience and lowliness and long-suffering and bearing with one another in love, it says in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the main thing in this passage. 
How are you going to walk? How are you going to live your life? This is how you do it. Maintain unity. How do you do it? You become the lowliest person and you give up all your rights and you put everybody ahead of you. You're at the very end of the line all the time and you wait until I tell you to do it otherwise. Anybody want to sign up? That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus. We cannot have unity in this church if your opinion is more important than someone else's. There will never be unity if your opinion is more important than someone else's. There never will be unity. And so I have to pull back my preferences, all of them. I pull them back, all of them. That's the only way. And, I, and if I don't set the example... What am, I, what am I doing? Can you see how humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing one another come first? Before any unity can happen, we've got to put all those things into practice. This is not easy, is it? And then the Holy Spirit oversees and promotes this peace within Christ's body. And yet, you know what? If you ever catch that bond of peace, And I have experienced it as pastor a few times over the years where I really sensed that everyone was on the same page. There is nothing like it. By the way, that's what it would be like to be in heaven when we're all perfectly on the same page loving each other. You're liking this, right? You signed up for it, right? I hooked you at the beginning, right? Do you know it's God that set the pattern for the unity of the Spirit? And that's my second thought. There's only two in this passage. It's God who set the pattern for the unity. Unity comes from God. All real unity emerges from God. He invented it. And there really isn't any other source of unity anywhere in the universe. But notice what he says in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. How many of those ones are there? Did you count them? One, well let's count them. One body, one spirit. You're called to one hope. How many is that? Okay, good. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God, who is Father of all. I come up with seven. I hope you did too. The Holy Spirit provides unity within the church. You know, I looked at these seven ones, and you know, you know people have actually written books about these seven ones and had spectacular things about what they mean and everything. I'll tell you what they mean. They mean that God is unity and He wants this for us. But notice how they're grouped together around the persons of the Godhead. And I, that's what we got to get here. Not whether the seven unities are some new denomination that we could make of churches or something. But that the Holy Spirit, first of all, provides unity within the church. That's what He's saying. Notice there's one body and one spirit. Isn't that what He's been hammering on in the first part of Ephesians? 
There's one body, the body of Christ, and all people groups fit into it. And once you come to know Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter whether your skin color is different or your ethnicity is different or you have a different language or you, know, you have a different socioeconomic level or, or anything else like that. The Holy Spirit is the focus of verse 4. It's the Holy Spirit who places all believers into the one body of Christ. If you would, keep your finger here. I want to turn over to 1 Corinthians 12 because this is an obvious commentary on this passage. Um, Colossians also speaks to it, but there's this very obvious passage in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13. So would you look with me there? Because it's important that we see it. It's a different context, but same concept. I want you to see it, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now this passage is mainly about spirit baptism. We're going to come back to that thought in a moment. But the idea here is that all these different people groups, all these individuals, look at all the individuals in the room right now. And I don't think there's any two of us that are identical, right? We're all our own. You know, God, God made, the, made you and threw away the mold. And he made you just the way he wants. And he loves you so beyond what you can possibly imagine. But he's put us together in this local body. And he expects us to sign up for giving up all of our rights and living for Jesus. That's no easy task. But it's the Holy Spirit that will do it. As we rely on him, because he's saying this, this once for all baptism into the body means that then we have a one hope that refers to the once-for-all salvation that we have in Christ when the Holy Spirit once and for all indwelled us and placed us into Christ's body. Okay, let's go back to Ephesians. I, I, I wanted you to see that 1 Corinthians 12 passage because it's a commentary on this Ephesians 4 passage, and it's going to say something further in just a moment. We said that the Holy Spirit provides unity within the church, but notice it's the Lord Jesus Christ who unifies the gospel. Have you ever heard us say we want to keep the main thing the main thing? What's the main thing, everybody? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our message. That's the only message. We're not here to do some political thing. We're not here to do anything else, some social gospel. The gospel is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that we're to proclaim Christ to the world and this community, and everyone should come to know him as their Savior. Do you know him? If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, please stay after and say something to me. Or one of the other leaders, if you can't talk to me. We would count it a great joy to open the Word of God and show you how to know Christ. What does it say in verse 5? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's talking about how Jesus unifies the gospel. We've said so far that there's one body, 
one spirit and one hope, all relating to how the, the church relates to one another, how the spirit places us in the body and gives us that hope of salvation. But the gospel message then, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, you're probably already thinking, well, let's just think about one Lord. When you see Lord in the New Testament, capital L-O-R-D, what should you immediately think? What person of the Godhead? Jesus. Lord, Kyrios, became a title for Jesus. When you have Lord in the Old Testament, a lot of English Bibles, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What is that Lord? That's Yahweh, the Godhead. The God of the Old Testament isn't clearly three in one. He's presented as one, and he's always one. But that Lord of the Old Testament carried over into the New Testament became a title for Jesus, which means God. So when we call Jesus Lord, we're really calling him God because of the Old Testament connection. We're calling him God, Jesus, Christos is anointed. Speaking of the fact that he's king. So there's one Lord, there's one Jesus. And then he says there's one faith. There's not a bunch of different kinds of faith. Sometimes we talk about different faiths as different contents of faith, but there's one real faith, there's one body of truth, and there's one action of faith that is acceptable to God. And it's genuine, it's childlike. A little child can believe and trust the Lord. Now we're going to get to this one about baptism. And I hope that you were excited for this one, because you're going, wait a minute, you just talked about spirit baptism. Isn't there such a thing as water baptism? Yes, there is. But the good news is, they're two sides of one coin. Water baptism is simply the outward ritual of what has already happened when the Spirit places you into the body. So one baptism, see how the, the two concepts come together because they're talking about the same thing. By the way, when we come to the Lord's table, we teach that you should not partake of the bread and the cup until you've publicly professed Christ as Savior and follow the Lord in water baptism. Water baptism is a public profession of faith. And it signifies lots of things. It pictures cleansing. It pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's the doorway into church membership. No one trusts Christ and gets baptized who shouldn't then be a member of a local church. It's a doorway to membership. You don't have to vote on it, okay? When someone trusts Christ and they're baptized, you don't get to vote on that, even though we vote on membership and stuff like that. But that's how the Lord works. And so water baptism is just the outward ritual of what has already happened inwardly. You follow that? That's why he says there's one. I hope you're starting to see that when the Lord talks about unity, he brings a bunch of pluralities and puts them together. There's one God. But wait a minute, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, but there's one God because there's three persons, but he's one. They share the same essence. Well, there's one faith. Yeah, there's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one church. We talk about local churches and all the different names on them. But the Lord looks at us as one church. All true believers. And the crowning point of this is verse 6. One God and Father of all. And you almost would be tempted to count those as two, but it's, it's one. 
God and Father is the same thing. One God represented by the Father who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if you haven't figured it out so far, you know that it's very hard to say what the Trinity is without sounding like you're contradicting yourself. He's one, but he's three. He's one God, three persons. You know, no matter how we try to explain it, we struggle. But in Deuteronomy 6.4, it says Yahweh is one God, and he is one. He's not three gods. He's not three personalities. He's one God. Did you get that? We're having a test later. (laughs) How many gods are there? One is the right answer. Write it on your hand. You don't want to miss that one. It is correct to say that Yahweh is one God who exists in three persons. Did you notice that these seven ones present unity? Oh, but seven, that's God's perfect number, yeah. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God, the Father of all. He puts it all together. Okay, so what we've been trying to say is the Christians are called to the the unity of the Spirit, and it's God who set the pattern for unity. That's it. But here's your take-home lessons. Okay, you're going to concentrate for another minute or so, right? I'm going to ask you some questions. This is your test. Take-home lessons. Number one. Is God's call to believers for unity a call to forfeit your rights? Now, I want you to think about this. Before you heard this sermon, how would you have answered that question? If you walked in today and I handed you a piece of paper that said, Is God's call to believers for unity a call for you to forfeit your rights? What would you have said? Don't tell me. Just think. What do you say now? Number two. Is God's call to believers for unity a call to humility? Can there be unity without humility? There cannot. Number three, what are the seven ones of Ephesians 4, 4 through 6? Can you name them? We just went through them. And how important are they? Should we build a new denomination on them? Or are we really saying, this is an expression of, of God's unity for us. Number four, is God one or three? Look at your hands. You wrote it on your hand. God is one. You got that one right. And finally, how should Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 affect our view of the local church? Mm, That's the one I really wanted you to get. It means when you walk in here, When I walk in here, I've got to be the most humble person here. I don't know if I can do it, but I've got to try. We're going to close in prayer, and while I pray, I'm going to ask the deacons to come up and take their place up here. Let's pray.